Well, do you ever think of yourself as being in a battle? Uh, Now, I don't doubt that for most people, at various times, you do. There's the battle to get ahead, the battle to overcome our weaknesses, the battle to make ends meet with the mortgage, with car repayments, with your struggling small business. There's the battle to overcome the competition in the industry you're in. There are There are relational battles that we have. There's battles of will. The list goes on and on. No one's life is struggle-free. But do you ever think of yourself as being in a spiritual battle? Yes? Or no? Now, if we don't, like it might be for a couple of reasons. And the first is perhaps it is because We often just aren't thinking about spiritual things. We're too busy bothering with material battles. Spiritual stuff, yeah, matters to us, but but in general, where our energy goes and where our mind is focused is not really on that. It stays nicely in its Sunday compartment. The spiritual battle is out of sight, it's out of mind, and so we actually need to be reminded of its reality lest we forget it. We've become so preoccupied and complacent that we've forgotten that there is a very real war on and that it is a dangerous place to be complacent about that because the reality of it might hit us unprepared and vulnerable. But the second alternative is the one that is tragically commonplace in our society. For most people, they don't know that they're in a spiritual battle at all because they're already in enemy territory. They don't feel the threat of the front line because the front line has already overtaken them. They've already been subdued. All that's left is an inkling that there is another side to life that occasionally comes unexpected, you know, like the the soft rumble of a distant cannon carried on the air. You feel this yearning to know God. You feel that life pursuing possessions and pleasures seems to have a ring of emptiness to it. You're not sure why. You worry about what will happen to you when you die. And you know that there is something more to life. But then the next ad comes and the phone alert pings. Your lunch break ends. And the thought is gone like a leaf on a breeze. Because people are in denial. They go, there is no battle. And so like British Prime Minister Chamberlain in 1939, we hold up a piece of paper and we say, peace in our time. And because we've said that to ourselves and asserted it to ourselves and affirmed it to ourselves, we think that this peace exists despite all of the evidence to the contrary. Oh, there is no God, there is no devil, there is no good or evil, there is no heaven or hell. We hum to ourselves John Lennon's Imagine and feel ourselves enlightened. And then we go back home to our spiritual house that has no windows. The Bible says, yes, there is a spiritual battle going on and it's actually been going on since the dawn of humanity. And the battleground is you. God wants you to be his. Your creator wants you to to turn from following your own desires and to serve him and to enjoy the eternal life that he's prepared for you. 
Meanwhile, Satan and his cohorts want you to be with them. They want us to continue to ignore God. They want us to stay in our sins and they want us to share their destruction. Like Hitler after D-Day, they know that the end is coming for them, but misery loves company, so they say. Well, we've come to the final part of this great letter to the Ephesians. Having taken us to the lofty heights of showing us what we have been given in Christ and having instructed us to live a life worthy of that calling, he now calls us to gear up for the battle ahead. The divine power Paul has repeatedly prayed to God for the Ephesians, that God would give them, he now instructs them to draw upon for themselves because they need to be equipped for the real world, the one that has far more going on in it than just meets the eye. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, be strong here is not a static thing. It really is the idea of, of being made able. Perhaps the word energised kind of captures the essence of it. If you're going into a, a physical contest of some kind, right, you don't want to be lethargic, or, do you, or, or, or weak? So you want to make sure you're fit, you've been training for it, you want to be energised, you want to have a, um, a good exercise regime, a healthy diet, a supportive social life that can enable you to really be on your A-game when you need to be. Those are the things that keep you going. Well, how are we to be energised and strong in the spiritual battle? Well, in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, mostly in Ephesians, when Paul speaks of the Lord, he means specifically our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. He is where we are to draw our strength from. We remember passages like uh, um, Matthew 4 that was read before us, that he has overcome. And he will empower us to do so as well. But one thing I want you to notice here is the, is the interesting mix of God and us. It's his strength, right? It's, it's his mighty power, the, the living God who made everything. It's incomparably great, right? We've already been told that. That's his. His dominion over us that we are to be strong in. But we are the one that's been given the command. There is something for us to do to be active in. And it's kind of like he was talking about putting off the old nature, putting on the new nature. We have, we don't have the old nature, we do have the new, but there's still a putting off and a putting on to it. The Christian life, in other words, is not this passive let go and let God. It is be strong in him and that's different. It is not us doing it in our own power, but it is us doing it, conscientiously, deliberately, and with firm battle-ready resolve. And what are we to do? Verse 11, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay, three things to notice here. First, the combat imagery now starts to come into full view. We're commanded to kit up for a battle. Second, we're to put on the full armour it's the whole kit. Now, we're going to speak more about this soon, but in this sense, it's a little bit like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, right? There might be nine virtues, but it's one fruit, singular. The Spirit is to bring out all of these things in us. 
And so likewise here, we're not to go out into battle wearing some of the bits of the armour of God. Hey, I like the helmet of salvation, that works for me, but I'm not sure the breastplate of righteousness really fits. No, we need the full armour because there is a stand to be made. Something, in other words, is coming our way that we need to be fully equipped for, lest it overcome us. It's almost got an ominous ring to it, doesn't it? And third, and this might seem subtle, but what we are standing against is not actually the devil himself. It's the devil's schemes, his methods. So I'm not arming myself and on the lookout, in other words, for some angelic being, evil angelic being, who's going to jump out from behind a pillar, like in some horror movie. But what I am to be looking out for is the plans and strategies and schemes that are his work. In other words, I've got to have my eyes open. I've got to be thinking. What we are to equip ourselves to take our stand against is less the devil himself, but the kind of stuff the devil does. Deceptions, unbelief, untruth, hostility, strife, disharmony, division among believers, hatred, apathy, and so on. That's the stuff that we're going to be trying to go, hang on, I can see that. Anything that's going to corrupt, destroy or spoil the relationship between God and those he's created to bear his image. Anything that will bring shame to the God that he hates so much. And spoiling Christ's holy church that which he redeemed by his blood to the praise of God's glory. Well, spoiling that wherever and whenever he can is a particular prize. The spiritual battle is real and it is present. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Look, Paul is not saying that flesh and blood doesn't matter. But our physical struggles are not the struggles that must be overcome. Remember Paul's point about his own imprisonment? Remember from earlier? He told him, don't stress about it. Don't be discouraged because of what's happening to me physically. It's actually to your glory. This is actually part of what God's doing. His, his presence in prison was not his great concern. If a flesh and blood opponent, you see, be it illness or wicked people or persecution or something like that, defeats us, if it wins, right, and we actually get hurt physically, harmed physically, it cannot separate us from God. It can't stop us reaching the glory that he has planned for us. To use language from earlier in Ephesians, the battle for the outer man is not the eternal one. It's going to pass away and that the resurrection be made new. The spiritual battle is what impacts our eternity and the eternity of others. This is the true field of battle. The battle for the soul, a battle for the glory of God. Have another look at the list that Paul gives us about who our struggle really is against. Now, what do you notice about it? Now, we don't know much about these spiritual opponents. It's interesting that the Bible actually doesn't tell us 
that much. So we clearly don't need to know that much. But we're told enough that we need to know. First, notice the plurality here. The devil, Satan, that we've already had mentioned, might be the chief opponent, but he's one of many. Second, they are not neutral. Look at those descriptions again. They're the forces of darkness and evil, right? They're hardened against God. They're malicious. Third, they're all described in authority terms. Our spiritual opponent's strength is in their power to influence. Influence. But we should already know that, shouldn't we? We should know it from experience. Because remember the beginning of chapter 2? Before we knew the grace of God in Jesus, we were under their influence. Dead in our transgressions and sins, deserving of wrath. We need to be wise and remember what the strategic long game is. And it's not flesh and blood. It's not finding a way to enter Sydney's property market. It's not living to 110. God knows that. The evil forces know it. Do you know it? That that's the long game? Do you live like you know it? Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. All right, so what if we do recognise this reality, that we are in a spiritual battle? Well, Paul tells us again, 13, Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So given all of this, put it on, gear up, get equipped, because it's not a question of if you will have to take your stand. It is when, when the day of evil comes. Now, what's that referring to, the day of evil? Well, I want to say it's not some future apocalypse, Armageddon, that will hit the world all at once. It's more like the time of testing that Jesus refers to in the parable of the sower, when the sun comes out to scorch the seed. That time where your faith will be particularly put to the test. But the language of day of evil is Paul highlighting the malicious intent of our spiritual opponents for that time. They're seeking actively our corruption, our destruction. They're seeking the shaming of God, the fracturing of his people on that day. It is not so much describing the day-to-day perseverance of the Christian, but it is more descriptive of those particular blowtorch days, those Book of Job kind of life crises, those times of intense temptation, those times when the challenges to our faith hit and hit hard, when it feels like the world has 
all of a sudden set itself against you and you feel within yourself deep conflict and oppression, fatigue, dissatisfaction, trial and temptation. And those days, can I say, can hit churches and groups of churches, not just individuals. We've got to be reading Ephesians with an Ephesians head and that is it's not just me, it's us. In fact, us is what God is particularly concerned about. Now, can you think of times like this for you? I thought I'd give you an example from my own experience. Now, Simeon and Kristen, they will know these days well because Simeon was on parish council at the time. All in the same broad period, um, I at one point had neighbours who every single weekend, every public holiday would be playing music at ridiculous levels from 11 o'clock at night, sometimes starting at 4 o'clock in the morning. I would have sleepless nights, I'd be frustrated, I'd be full of anger. I started to hate them. Um, There was a disturbed and, can I say, sinister man. It's not often someone comes into your church and somebody who's a social worker comes up to you the first night, they come there and go, that man is evil. But he came in and over a period of 12 months or so, subtly, and then in the end, not so subtly, caused havoc. At one point, he told his Bible study that God had told him to bring down Minchinbury Anglican Church. Does that sound like the sort of thing that God tells people to do? Um, before recruiting, the guy then recruited, recruited another disturbed lady to do his job for him after he got banned from setting foot on our property. I had a children's minister who got stuck in the middle of what that man was doing and then had to leave the ministry, well, not leave the ministry, but leave working at, at, at Minchinbury. I had a personal dryness and dissatisfaction at my own ministry over that time. I had some key members of my church who were in conflict with one another, good people, but they couldn't click with one another. A dear friend and assistant minister had a breakdown, had to step out of ministry in order to heal himself at that time. Um, uh, Another friend I was meeting with each week was suicidal and there were more things than that. It was one thing on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. And one warden said to me, well, you know what, we must be doing something right because Satan is really going to town. That day of evil lasted for about two years. And yet, as we look back, you know, God was gracious. We got through it. And though it took a toll, we were sustained by God throughout. In the end, we did stand, personally and as a church. And the church grew and people became Christians all by the power of God, and we prayed like the bilio. Anyone who has been a Christian for any sustained period of time will think of intense times in their life, more than one. It's not a question of if, but when, and we need to be ready. If you're a new Christian, brother, sister, you need to be ready. But we also need to hear the great confidence, can I say, in these verses about what we can do in God's mighty strength. We might be against authorities and powers and things like that. We are drawing on the power of the incomparably great power of the living God who made everything. He's the one who we get to draw from and he will enable us to stand. And notice what it says, after we have stood, we'll still be standing. And so now is when Paul spells out actually what this full armour of God that we've got to put on is. So maybe you can picture a a soldier walking into their tent in the pre-dawn hours before a battle and their equipment is arrayed before them and with a heightened awareness 
of someone who is more than aware of what they must be ready to face and how important it is that each piece is for them, slowly and methodically puts them on one by one, each in turn, every strap, every buckle properly fixed. That battle-minded intentionality. That's the picture we're getting here in these verses from 14 to 17. Well, the protection that God provides for us is not made of iron or Kevlar. We use what, what use of material things in a spiritual battle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, God equips us spiritually so we can stand firm, firm against spiritual attacks. And, and each piece of equipment is part of a whole. Paul, Paul paints us the picture of a fully kitted out Roman soldier, but with each item being a different attitude, virtue or gift with which God has equipped us to stand firm. Now, the first four pieces of armour are things that you can do, that you can put on, right? The military equivalent of putting on the new self. That which is Christ-like and godly, we are now to embrace and we're now to wear out in the world. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. It's literally gird up your loins with truth. It's an expression about readiness. And truth has been big in Ephesians, hasn't it? The truth we've been told is the gospel. The truth is what we speak to one another in love as we put off all falsehood. The truth we're told um, is a fruit of the light. But how is it spiritual? How is truth spiritual armour? Because the evil one's the father of lies. Falsehood and untruth belong to the old way under his influence and rule. Girding ourselves up, being ready with the truth, equips us individually and the church as a whole to identify and oppose those lies. That's what we read about in chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love makes us mature in Christ, makes us ready for falsehood when it faces us. The second piece of equipment is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate, of course, um, was that hardened, moulded leather plate that covered the chest and back. The Christian has had their sins taken away and are considered right with God because of what Jesus did for them on the cross. And so the Christian is then to live a righteous life. Righteousness is not to be confused, by the way, with self-righteousness. It's Christian integrity. It's living how Jesus would have you live. Or to use the pivotal words from chapter 4, verse 1, it is living a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And God's calling for us is that we, beloved children of his in Christ, will be holy and blameless in his sight. That's what brings him glory. That's what we've got to make sure we're ready to do. See, complacency, on the other hand, complacency with sin and immorality, it's embracing darkness when we're called to be light. I guess you could say it's like consorting with the enemy. And before you know it, you've been enticed and drawn away. Don't give him a chance. The third aspect of the armour of God is some footwear. Have a look at verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You remember Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 17. Remember that peace is what Christ has preached to those of us who are far away and those who are near, to, to Jew and to Gentile. Peace is what the gospel 
achieves. Uniting us to one another as if we're one new man in Christ. Uniting us to one another, uniting us to God through Christ by his spirit. The gospel is a message of peace. It is the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation he brings. That is profoundly good news. And because it's good news, the Christians to be ready with it, ready to present it to whoever would hear. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we read how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But how is it spiritual armour? Well, because of the strife and dissension and anger that the evil one uses to divide. Don't you remember back in chapter 4, verse 27, we're told that when we neglect peace and embrace anger and division, we give him a foothold. We're to be a team who model the peace of the gospel, even as we preach the peace of the gospel. What did Paul say in chapter 4, verse 3? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. No one hates Christians telling others about Jesus more than Satan does. Don't you think it's a paradox that a message about peace can be such a potent force in a spiritual war? Well, a fourth virtue to take up is in verse 16. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith is trusting God. You know, the shield that Paul is speaking about is not some small round number, but the big body-sized Roman shield. See, archers would shoot their arrows into the opposing troops to break up their formations, creating holes in the ranks that would enable their, their, their foot soldiers and cavalry to come through. And flaming arrows were especially effective at creating panic and disorder. See, they penetrate and burn and so spread along the lines. You see, this is also not just an individual image, but it is a corporate image. Satan's arrows are not just arrows, they're flaming arrows. And it's not just he's trying to amp it up and make it sound cooler. However, the Romans would have these big, curved, rectangular shields that could protect the whole body from arrows and, when they, were and they were drenched in water before battle so that they wouldn't be burned. The image Paul is using here is quite a dramatic one. The attacks of the evil one are generally dangerous, genuinely dangerous, like flaming arrows, and not just aimed to harm the individual. When a Christian gives up their faith, when a Christian stumbles and abandons Christ and runs from the line, it can easily and often affect others. These attacks could be anything from temptation to immorality to doubt, false teaching, fear. Without faith, we stand vulnerable to these attacks and they will strike home. But trust in the promises of God, knowing that he is good and powerful and for you, it can extinguish everyone, whatever he throws at us. Well, there are four things that God gives us and he says, put them on. But then there are two things that we're to take. 
Now, unlike those things that we clothe ourselves with, characteristics and virtues that we embrace and live out, the final two items are gifts of God that we simply take hold of and that will provide profound protection in our struggle. Take the helmet of salvation, verse 17. And what does it mean to take this up? Assurance. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. You remember those words from chapter 1? That's what we have. Take it. You know, the word Satan means accuser. You know, how great it is to engage in this spiritual battle knowing that no accusation can now be made. He has no claim on you. There's no charge that he can bring to one who is in Christ and we are sealed by his spirit. We will be saved. In the end, battles still rage and we must endure them, but we go into them knowing that the war is going to be won and in Christ you will overcome. But the second gift of God that is simply there for us to take up is the Word and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, interestingly, as often has been pointed out, it's the only weapon on the list. Remember the territory being fought over in this battle is people. And the way God wins people is through his word, which the Holy Spirit uses to convict people of their need to turn back to Christ and call Jesus Lord. And his word teaches us and it rebukes us and it corrects us and it trains us in righteousness so that we are thoroughly equipped to do his work. So there is the full armour of God. Put it on. Take it up and stand your ground. One of the easy things we can do if we're familiar with this passage in Ephesians 6 is to see a natural break between verses 17 and verse 18. You know, having talked about the armour of God, you know, he's now moving on to some new subject. As he, as he winds up, he feels like he should probably encourage them to pray. But no, actually this section continues the battle imagery and he do, it does it in a very important way. And I think we must see it this way. We've got to understand the place prayer has in all of this. See, having been kitted up with the full armour of God, that the saints, the Holy One in Christ, Jesus, is to now take his or her place as a guard, as a watchman. And we do that by praying. You see, the word for alert there in, in that verse is the word for keeping watch. It can even mean going without sleep. It's describing tireless vigilance. It's still a military picture. And what, let me ask you this, what is so precious in the book of Ephesians, what are we told is so precious that you think God would call his people to stand watch tirelessly over it? What is worth that in Ephesians? You know what the answer is. His church. Verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
prayer for God's people, literally pray for all the saints. Requests, by the way, in the first half of that verse, praying in the second half, it's, it's the same word. And, and it's actually quite an evocative word. Uh, it means to plead, to beg. And describes that which is asked with urgency, based on a presumed need. The picture of prayer here is that of of calling on God, pleading with him on behalf of your fellow believers. What we pray for, you see, reveals where our heart is. And our heart should be where God's heart is, focused on Christ being glorified in his people. And prayer is a critical way that we draw on the power of our mighty God to achieve this. Now, let me just pause and say, don't you think that's something that we need to do right now? Surely, I hope we've noticed that right now in our society amongst us that the bullets are flying, the spiritual bullets. Just think about what lockdown means. Just think about the term social distancing. Everything that is going on is about pulling people apart, separating us, taking away connections, because that's what transfers a virus. But it's also how you love, isn't it? It's how you grow. It's how you unite. Because you know what God's on about? He's on about gathering, uniting, building. And we're in a time of separation. Do you think Satan's got no interest in this? Do you think he has no interest in keeping that separation as long as he can? Do you think there's no things that he's doing with it? Because I know people that haven't even made connection with church in a year, who've been regular. And what about people who um, attempted to perhaps go, you know, I don't think I'll come back. I'm happy just to watch the live stream. Because actually it frees me up to do all this stuff with my lifestyle that I'm kind of keen to do. See, see there's a, a temptation there that we don't, from, from being pulled apart, that we don't prize gathering. What will you be doing when we can gather? Will you come back? Will you actually want to see people face to face? Because you know, that's what God is doing. And the one who wants to separate us and not have us back together is the evil one. I mean, this is on top of all of the incidental things that being locked out and being kept alone and being separated and being not able to do all of the things that matter so much to us, just the things that they bring into the picture. Can't you see Satan's hand in this? And what about the other aspect? What is God on about with his people? Uniting us. Uniting us in love. And what are we facing? We're facing a time when the government might say to us that if you haven't got a vaccine passport, you can't meet. Now, you might have, the, and there, you might have, you all have lots of different views on this. How might Satan use that in this battle? How might he use you in that, in this battle? What do we need to be on our guard for? Well, it's got to be division, doesn't it? It's got to be having things like that, separating us from recognising the big picture of what God is doing in the world and what he must be doing with us. If we let this divide us, whatever comes out of this, we're playing another game than what God wants us to play. We are in a time of testing brothers and sisters. Are you vigilant? Are you going to put on the armour of God? 
Are you going to look at Ephesians and go, what must I come out of this with? What does God want from me and what must I not let Satan do? Myself and for us. Well, the last thing that he gets them to pray for is Paul in prison behind enemy lines. You see, the glorious gospel mission is actually the means by which Christ's church is built. And notice that Paul doesn't ask them to pray primarily for his release. In fact, he doesn't actually ask for that at all. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. He's in chains for it and he's going, don't let me be tempted to shut my mouth on this. I must preach this gospel and I must not let being in prison for it get in the way of that. This is the front line of the battle. This is, this is the artillery that does not just protect from the evil one's attacks, but makes decisive movement into his territory. To use Paul's words from Romans, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the means by which our King Jesus binds up the strong man and plunders his house, freeing those who are captive to him. Paul says, be on your guard, warrior, and pray for that. Well, Paul's run his race. He's receiving his reward. But the work of the gospel still got to go forth. And it's on us. And so it should be on our lips, in our hearts, saturating our prayers. Friends, we're in a war. And yes, it's a war that will be won. But we're still in it. And you... No, that's not Ephesians thinking. We are both soldiers for Christ, but we're also targets for the enemy. So be on your guard, ready yourself, and in the mighty power of your God, stand. For Christ is enough.